Transportations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners and viewers may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. Hello everybody, this is Todd Fredericks, uh, Associate Professor of Family Medicine at The Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. And today we're going to continue with our uh, interview with uh, Dr. Todd Jambros, who's the Medical Director at Appalachian Behavioral Health um, Hospital in Athens, Ohio. Uh, and with that, I'm going to give it over to Mara. Hi, I'm Mara Lyon-Decker. I am a second year medical student here at OUHCOM. And again, we have Dr. Jambros here with us today. Um, so. We sort of left off, I had a couple questions about, you mentioned when you have new admits. I was curious what sort of questions and protocols, I guess, do you go through when you have a new patient come in? So everyone's a little different and I approach my patients different on how they come in. So there's two ways I see patients first time is, first, as an on-duty doc at night, I'm watching them walk in the door, whether an ambulance brings them or a police officer brings them. And then the second way is when I see them when they've already been here overnight and some on-duty physicians already admitted them. So wh whenever I talk to a patient, I just, I mostly feel out, feel out first off what they can tolerate. Because I think a lot of times um, we are so focused on getting our comprehensive psych exam, right? So we want our full history. We want all the things we want out of uh, medical history and physical. And on top of that, we want all the psychosocial information. We want all the, the history of present illness with the different review. On top of a regular view of symptoms, we have a psychiatric review of symptoms, right? So the first thing I actually do is, is I kind of sit back in the hallway and I watch the patients come through the door. So I always tell the nurses I go, and everyone handles it different. This the way I handle it. Is I watch them walk in the door and I watch how they are, they are going to deal with our staff. And um, there are so many times we get reports like this patient is hitting and biting and spitting and doing all these things and the police can't maintain them. And our staff is so used to this. Like a lot of times I'll have a patient come in the door and I have emergency meds ready just in case, just because you want the orders if needed. And they walk in the door and the minute they get to our staff, they're fine. It doesn't mean they can tolerate all the questions or anything, but you know what's great is that they just come in and uh, we just meet them at the door and we make them feel safe. And that's our first priority. And after that, I go in and introduce myself. I usually make some kind of sarcastic remark to uh, about the nurse that's in the room. Like, and they all, they, all, they all roll with it. No one, you know, they all know me at this point and know how full of crap I can be at times. But I just try to lighten the mood with, with humor. And if they get the humor, I know I'm in good shape. Mm -hmm. If they don't get it, then I know, okay, I've got to be careful. We've got to talk to this person. We've got to work more on them feeling safe. And I'm not going to bombard them with like, hey, how was your childhood? Who raised you? You know, right. it's really like all I'm trying to get then is like, what do I need to do to make this person feel safe and help lower their symptoms so they can get through the night and then have that in-depth discussion with their psychiatrist in the morning. Yeah, you're you're doing real triage. Yeah, and and this is a this is a challenge for undergraduate medical education is getting medical students to look at vital signs, 
and look at a general gestalt of the patient. Are they sick or not sick? Uh, and I think that's a really good thing because so often they want to jump right in and start doing procedures or doing something crazy, drawing blood, drawing. I'm like, man, you can take 10, 15 seconds if there's no immediate airway problem and just look them over and see where they at. Do they look like they're really ill? They look like they can communicate. They look like they're talking, maintaining airway. There's so much you can glean just from that brief observation period about where a patient's at. It doesn't yeah. take long, but we, we don't, people don't adapt to that well. And that's cool to see that you do that. And I also I, wonder if it's because they're coming from the ER and it's so chaotic. ERs are mm -hmm. so chaotic. They are. That if you have a person that's got an acute psychotic break and you, they're just really wound up, that's the last place you want to put them. I and, mean, and I think a lot of that comes from my training as a paramedic and my experience yeah. being a paramedic. Right. Yeah. I mean, I could go on and I could talk hours about my time as a paramedic, but when I see a patient, what you forget is that your gut is real. Like I know, totally. I know we're some, you know, vitals. What's their skin look like? But you can look at a person. If your gut's telling you this feels bad, my next question is: If you don't have the proof, why aren't you still listening to it? There's a reason. Mm -hmm. And if you're wrong, okay, it just means you were more cautious, right? Like the worst case scenario is if your gut's telling you something, means you're more cautious, and you're doing, you know, like. Well, there's a point there, and I, I'm a big pre-hospital guy for that reason. I, my dream would be that every medical student would start as a paramedic because it's a level of care that's usually under a, so usually under protocols and a formulary. You start making medical decisions. You have to live by them. But there's the first thing that every paramedic learns or every EMT learns, and that's scene safety PPE, mm -hmm. right? The first thing, look at the scene. Am I safe to go in there? Where's my protective equipment? And it's the same thing. It's that general view of what's going on in the situation, and you can get so much information that helps you develop better care for your patient acutely. And that's really cool. I, I guarantee that came out of your paramedic training time. That's what I think. I'm know. sure it did. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm quick. I, I tell staff when stuff feels like I kind of say, <laughs> I tell like, I'll go, okay, that feels good. Or I go, oh, this feels bad. And like, I'm, I'm kind of like sarcastic in my humor. I say it, but staff knows what I mean when I say that, you know, this feels bad. And everyone... People get, you know, people are looking, you know. Your and, spider sense uh, is going yeah, off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, and I, I'm I'm very rarely wrong. But I'll tell you, any time that I prepare for the worst, most times that doesn't even happen. You know, like, that's a big thing. Like, I sit back and I'm always like, okay, we're going to prepare for this. And uh, people are like, oh, why are you so pessimistic? I'm going, I'm not. Things are going to be fine. You know why? We're prepared. And they always end up, mm -hmm. they always end up fine. Two is one and one is none. Two is one and one is none. You only, mm. If you only have one plan, you got no plan. You That's always got to have a backup, right? What mm -hmm. am I going to do if? Very true. There's mm -hmm. there's many times where I know our EMR is slow. I reviewed allergies. I've ordered emergency meds. It doesn't mean they get them. It just means that instead of a patient waiting for all that time for a pharmacy to verify or all those things, if they need them, and I make that choice that they need them when I'm assessing that patient, it's ready. How much less trauma is that on the patient knowing the shot's coming and then you're waiting for all that for me to go get on a computer, make those orders and mm -hmm. all that stuff. And then, you know, I, I never use the order that I put in. Well, that who no one loses there. You know, the only problem is, Todd, there's been a transition in, in regular healthcare about getting away from those standing orders, which I think is ridiculous because we practiced with them for years. And maybe there was a few medical errors with them or a few weird administrations. Or I don't know why that happened because I'll tell you what, as a house officer, when you're a resident, it's night and day to have standing orders that the you trust your nursing staff, and they're going to make a decision. You don't have to wake me up to give Tylenol, but it's there for the patient. You don't have to wake me up for this. It's okay. Make a decision if you think it's a... That's so true, and yet you see a lot of blowback in terms of some large medical corporations that don't want that 
big healthcare corporations don't want those anticipated orders of, you know, if this, then this. And it really does speed things up because sometimes it can take a very long time to get things released with Pixis and stuff just to go get it. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a real ha- – VA was terrible for that. Yeah. Why do you think they don't want that? Has there been, like, Liability. things happen in the past? And, okay. and mis- people – human beings make errors. They do. Right. I mean – But if you think about that, even the physician could potentially – you know, make an error as well. So it is, but give and take, I guess when you put it in and then all the safeguards that get there. Right. So Mm -hmm. I put an order and then pharmacy verifies. Right. And they're looking if there's allergies and all these things. And then the nurse has to verify. Right. Mm -hmm. And you're going through all those check systems. I see. And, um, so if I'm called to go see a patient that could need medications and a lot of times, I mean, I, I don't have to do that. You know, most times actually, and but I check, I make sure there's no allergies, I know there's no contraindications. You're going to be injections and emergency medications. It's not like I'm giving them a choice, right? Mm-hmm. So I have them ready to go, and then nursing staff is drawing them up, and then they feel better because they know things. If 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 that patient, if I'm not able to calm that patient down, they're going to have to use some kind of restraint or something. They know there's a lot less time waiting on the situation to be okay. So it's just it's just being prepared. So the worst case scenario is I go back to my office and cancel the order. That's right. It, you're going to find in your career, Mara, a lot of it's driven by liability. Mm-hmm. People who don't have anything to do with patient care make these decisions. They, they're lawyers or attorneys, and they come in and say, well, we're just going to make a blanket decision because this thing went bad and we're afraid of like liability. And that's a lot of what drives medicine today. That's frustrating. It is because it it, um, it emasculates pro- providers, you know, physicians, nurses, people who should be able to make good decisions and have to learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. And it, it and at the end, it really hurts patients because it is a long delay sometimes or you have to get the, the doc out of the call room. or Yeah, I see it all the time. It's changed quite a bit since when I went through residency. When I went through residency, we trusted our nurses and they were very good at telling us when to do things and what, what they were worried about. And you got to empower people. Trust them. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll make the generally speaking well trained people will make good decisions. Yeah. Good to know. Good yeah. advice. <laughs> yeah. What do you see as some of the future trends and development within psychiatry? You know, I, I don't know. Psychiatry has changed so much. When you look at the history of psychiatry and how much things have changed and how much we don't know, there is so much that we don't know. Like right now, they're. Um, looking at different drugs like ketamine and things like that. And I tell students all the time how exciting psychiatry is because we still have so much to learn, right? We're Mm -hmm. doing that brain initiative that Obama started, and we have these partnering with um, uh, technology agencies, things like that, to map the brain like we mapped the genome in the 90s. And who knows what we're going to turn up. It's an exciting time to be in in this area, and... And just uh, just to see, like, who knows in 10 years if I'm even prescribing SSRIs for depression? Who knows? I mean, mm-hmm. look at the stuff with ketamine. I don't know, right? I mean, they're getting ready to approve FDA an intranasal form of ketamine called esketetamine. But, you know, it's like, but what? where is it, where is it going to go? And that's, I think that's another reason I love psychiatry is I think I've been in school my whole life. And if I'm going to stay a good psychiatrist, I'm going to have to stay in school my whole life, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's great. Um, 
yeah, I, I think it's exciting. And it's, I know I was like, oh, I don't know, but it's great that we don't know because it just shows how much we're going to learn. It's going to show how much is in the pipeline and Melorel. Melorel. <laughs> right? Yeah. I At one patient. point, that was state of the art meds. And he, I have it. Right? Yeah. And it was on a med list of a patient trying to get admitted. It's like, you don't see Melorel. It's very old first generation antipsychotic. Mm-hmm. I can't even say the generic form of the name because I've only ever seen like very few patients on it. Right. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just not the, it's just not something, it's changed so much and we keep changing. So I had our, I had our pharmacist pull me a list of all the meds that have been taken off the market since 2010 because they passed phase four trials, FDA trials, but then they released the public and they're killing people. They came up with a list of 18 different drugs. Like these were, you're perfectly safe. We're going to put them on the market. Wow. 18 of them pulled since 2010, right? That's it's so what you're saying, right, is at one point Melaril was the newest, coolest thing, and now no one uses it, right? But ketamine, which is I love ketamine because I'm a pre-hospital guy. So ketamine's used all over the military because mm-hmm. it's a really cool drug. And I'm really interested to see what it does with PTSD patients in long-term trials and for selected populations. But but yeah, see, that's a whole new thing. Lifetime learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really is. I um, shadowed a psychiatrist up there last week and she was even just telling me how much the dsm has changed and how much it's going to change in the next couple of years what's what's interesting is is when i started residency the dsm-4 was in place in my first year and they told us not to even learn it because their dsm-5 was coming out that was a real quick turnaround wasn't it between four and five it I wasn't know. but a year or two oh i think it was longer than that but the turnaround happened when they made the choice they just rolled and it just i remember happened. that that was a huge change because three was there forever it was and four and four tr they were there well I, I should probably know the dates but i don't and i'm the only psychiatrist that only knows the dsm-5 and you should see the different diagnoses that go around mental health because of the change in books i only know dsm-5 i mean i we don't even use access diagnosis anymore although i know them because they're taught all of my, all my, like, for instance, substance abuse diagnoses are different, right? Because we realize that you don't have to have addiction or dependence to have a problem with substances. So we have, like, alcohol use disorder, opioid use disorder. Wait a minute, you don't use access diagnoses anymore? No, it's a problem with, like, general medicine. So you have your primary problem first. And, like, a patient's admitted a long time, sometimes their primary diagnosis change. Like, especially, like, What a about patient, access to, though? The two is you. It's you're there no. forever. That that changes. There's no more access. The, the axes are gone unless you choose to use them. Like I, uh, we have problem lists. If you look at start looking at your notes, you go to work. There's not access diagnosis. Well, I saw come a couple recently. Yeah, it was ABH, but People's, that's done. It wasn't at ABH. I would believe you have primary diagnosis and then you have your secondary diagnosis. And while other I places have no haven't idea. given up access, and there's plenty of people that still use it. I know what axes are and. I hate to say this, of all the changes about DSM-5, I miss my access diagnosis. I feel like it was very descriptive of a patient. But, like, for instance, I had a patient who has had two diagnoses, schizoaffective disorder and borderline personality disorder. They were admitted to the hospital because they were unstable and their schizoaffective disorder, they were very psychotic and it was their primary mental illness. The reason they were in the hospital for three more months was after their schizoaffective disorder was stabilized. Their primary problems are borderline personality disorder. So literally in that problem list from admission in the first month, second month, but from schizoaffective disorder to borderline personality disorder ended up being yeah. their primary. And schizoaffective disorder was still there, but it was the medication is real easy with schizoaffective disorder. It's not with borderline personality disorder, right? So 
It was a flip-flop in that diagnosis. I struggled for years. I mean, I trying to figure out what accesses meant. And I finally had a friend of mine start giving me these sort of mnemonic things to remember it by. That's really cool to think that that's even more like medicine again, right? So that the psychiatrist... Oh, wait, wait, wait. Psychiatry oh, is medicine. Oh, <laughs> I know. It's so Psychiatry cool. Look at that. I know. But see that for years, Todd, they had this whole thing like these accesses and no one in medicine really knew what they meant. And what, is, what are they talking about? I just mean, I think that means you medical people got a poor education because accesses were wonderful. But well, I mean, I know that just, this, that. I'm just saying we were like <laughs> soap, you know. Well, I, listen, I tell everybody here, yeah. I'm a family doctor. I'm, I'm like the I'm like the golden retriever of medicine. I'm yeah. ADHD and just friendly, right? So the so the, so the fact of <laughs> the matter is 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 that it's hard to understand some of that nuance. Yeah. But to know that psychiatry is trending back towards a normal soap note with this is the primer, this is this problem list, and this is what we're going to deal with. That's what it is. That makes a lot more sense. That's what it is. We have primary diagnosis and then secondary diagnosis. So let me ask a, a question then. Do you see a trend in, in I, maybe this is an issue of destigmatization of mental health and behavioral health, I guess. Do you see a trend? Because, you know, it's it's terribly difficult sometimes to access behavioral health records for medicine people. I, and I don't mean that pejoratively. You know what I'm talking no, about. No, it's very for, hard to find an EMR that works well with behavior because our... Our, our soap notes are so different, right? I'm sorry, I'm probably interrupting you. But no, like, no yeah, it's okay. I want this. The, the, our subjective, what's important for us in a subjective is not important for what's in, for you in a subjective. Truly. Mm -hmm. And when we have our, oh, our objective is our mental status examination, right? I mean, we'll have vitals. We look at all that stuff. But it's not imp important to me is not that they have a regular heartbeat, but are they, you know... What's their mood? What's their affect? Are they responding internal stimuli? But see, this is so refreshing. I won't use medicine people. I'll say non-psychiatrists. So non-psychiatrists that are managing psychiatric patients, do you see a, a, a period of time where the stigma of and, and the protective nature of behavioral health, in addition to the protections afforded by non-psychiatric medical care, is more integrated to where medical people start seeing the normal psychiatric diagnoses and those those um, assessments. Because, see, to me, it's always been mind, body, spirit. It's always integrated. Right. I'm a DO, so everything's integrated. And what I find is this disjointed thing between behavioral health over here and medicine stuff over here. And I'm like, I desire for it to come in so then I have a better picture of, oh, this person's got schizoaffective disorder and they're on this regimen of meds and these are the meds and maybe there's a problem there so I can see them without having to go track this down over here and no one wants to give me those records. I mean, yes. Like one of the things that huh. frustrates me is I am an osteopathic physician. What is more osteopathic than psychiatry? Family medicine. No. No, really it is. It's not. <laughs> we look at the mind, body, and spirit. We are psychiatry is an osteopathic profession, yet we don't acknowledge it like we should. And mm -hmm. I find it's viewed that way. Yes, the, of course. And it is. Mm -hmm. It's. It's. That's why we got to change that. It's got to yeah. stop. There are not enough psychiatrists to treat people with mental illness. Do you know who prescribes more SSRIs and psychiatric meds than anyone else family in the country? Family, family, medicine. family medicine physicians. How much How much psychiatry did you do in your family med residency? Uh, uh, no, did you even no. get a month? No. I remember. Because they scared me. Here's when I was 100% sure I knew I wasn't going to do family med. Is I did a wonderful, am I allowed to say where it was? Is of course you can. Yeah. I was doing this um, audition rotation in Clarksburg, West Virginia. For family med and man did i love that program it was a great family med program i'm sure at it UMH? still is yes at umh yeah. great program 
Right down the street from the VA. And I was sitting there, yes. Before they built the new hospital. Yeah. Which is much nicer, by the way. See, I was there for the old hospital. Which is horrible. All the way downtown. Oh, yeah, that's right. So I'm in their family med clinic, and I'm rolling along, and all of a sudden, I'm, I'm asking the family med doc, how did you choose what antidepressant you were on? And the attending, the residents, they're like, well, we just use Paxil. It just works. I go, why does it work? Now, you understand, I'm a student that's interviewing psychiatry, and I'm, I'm interviewing family med, right? Mm-hmm. And I know why you're going to choose paroxetine over sertraline. I know why. And even the attending goes, they're all the same. All SSRIs are the same. Mm-hmm. And right there off the bat, I realized that I had to be a psychiatrist. Like, right then, I was kind of looking at both. And the fact that these physicians I looked up to, and I did, they were fabulous physicians, and one of the things I do is I spend so much time with med students. Every med student that comes through me gets a two-hour lecture on SSRIs, SNRIs, when to use which one, when, why you would use one over When can another. I sit down for that lecture? Psycho. Anytime. Because I'm like, next time you're there and I'm rolling. I am one of those FPs. Yeah. Prozac. You're going to yeah. do Dude, that's why I use Prozac. For the site club, right? Yeah, you got to invite me. I'll come I do will. it. No, yeah. this, I mean, this is really important what you're saying because most FPs, unless they seek it out, don't have any it psych it, rotations. They don't know. And then they get there and they people want, you know, mild depression. They want to have some kind of SSRI. You're like, okay, uh, Prozac. I've seen it even <laughs> in my CCEs. Yeah. Um, someone will come in. Oh, I'm feeling sad lately. My dog passed away in the, not that they don't need it, but the primary care physician is so just like, okay, well. We'll try this one and and that's it. And I so I've been given the opportunity. I'm I'm been talking to one of the directors of family med residency at OMH, and I mean I've taught a couple classes there when I was a resident. They're inviting me back. I'm so excited. The people I want to teach and the people I want to reach out to are primary care providers. We throw all the responsibility on them, but there's no support there. And, you know, the American Psychiatric Association and what we do in our residency, there's two big things we're trying to do, and it's integrated care and collaborative care. And in this rural population, we aren't going to find more psychiatrists to come to Athens, West Virginia. What we've got to do is better educate the physicians that are here and give them the support they need. There shouldn't be splitting back and forth. It should be all of us are physicians and all of us should be working together. I mean, every day, I feel like every week, someone else has died from suicide. Someone has died from a drug overdose. Why aren't we helping each other? And integrated clinics is a great way to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Collaborative care is a great way to do that. If I had a primary care office say, hey, we want a psychiatrist that we can just review some cases with. Do you know how many of those patients can get help and then they don't ever need me? Or they never walk mm-hmm. in my door at ABH? Mm-hmm. And these are the models that psychiatrists are trying to push through. And I feel like primary care is the same way, but, you know, I get a very slanted view, right? Because... I'm, I go to all psychiatry conferences and all that stuff, but we really are pushing this integrative collaborative care. And I feel like it's what we really need to do, especially um, with us in a rural population, you know? Well, I mean, I, I think of myself as fairly informed, and yet I wasn't aware that accesses weren't used. I wasn't aware of this. I think that's really why there's a great mission for the psychiatrist to come back and kind of bring the family doctors and let's talk to you about how this is really working these days and what we really think. Because again, we started this with kind of some stereotypes and some things that we think of 
those haven't been debunked. And I guarantee I'm not the only person that feels that way. Although the more I learn about what psychiatry is doing, the more I realize there is exactly what you say, a real need to have that reintegration. And I'll give you one other one that drives me crazy because in my other world, I'm an aerospace medicine consultant. In the 1990s, uh, Ritalin uh, suddenly showed up in the family medicine office. And you know, methylphenidate, uh, these other drugs that are used now, and we have a whole generation of young people that were given a diagnosis of ADHD that were never given cognitive or behavioral assessments to find out if they really had it, and they were given that diagnosis, and now they want to go fly airliners, and they want to do things like that that occupationally they're disqualified from because they have an exact, a, 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 a poorly done diagnosis of ADHD, just simply because maybe some of them were just really active boys at seven or eight years old, and the teacher said, you're hyper, you need to go get drugs. The, the yeah. cavalier nature of looking at behavioral health and not fully assessing someone before you give them a lifetime diagnosis is catastrophic for some of these young people starting their careers because they find, I can't do this now because someone gave me a diagnosis and it takes forever. Neuropsychological evaluations that are extraordinarily expensive. They should have been done a long time ago with the kid. It's not done. And even to turn it into a different way than that is when you look at depression, Mm. when you look at bipolar disorder, when you look at schizophrenia, all of them have a deficiency in concentration. And you hear, oh, you can't concentrate? Let me give you Vyvanse. some Vyvanse or Adderall. <laughs> yeah. And you would not believe the patients I we get admitted that physicians on the outside will sit. And I even call them on the phone. There was, there was a physician who just tried to tell me this patient had ADHD and I was wrong when this patient came in manic on a stimulant she prescribed. And I couldn't believe that she was giving me one upside down the other, but, and they forget that concentration and a deficiency in concentration is present across almost all the mental illnesses, right? Interesting. Depression, right? Poor concentration. Bipolar disorder, mania, who concentrates when they're manic, right? Or hypomanic, they're even, a person that's hypomanic doesn't look pathological. Are you, what assessment are you doing? Yeah, it's easy to do an ADHD assessment and get a positive. What are you doing to rule out the negatives? Are you ruling out the bipolar disorder? Are you ruling out the depression? And so on the other scheme of that, not only are we rushing into giving meds for ADHD that may not be there, like you're saying, how about all those patients that get medication for ADHD? And then when they come to me and I tell them you have bipolar disorder, not ADHD, and yes. I'm wrong, and why would I say such a thing? And I right. can't convince them otherwise. <sighs> wow. Yeah. It is. It, it, that's, that is why this is such a... A refreshing conversation, Todd, because to see psychiatry leaning more towards reintegration of mind, body, spirit, as opposed to just being over and doing psychiatric work is really good for patients overall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's going to be a much better future for a lot of these people because they're not going to get in that conundrum. But by the way, Mark, I don't mean to interrupt you because it's fascinating. It's fascinating no. to me as anybody else. Go ahead. But so you strike me as a cognitive guy. You've said a lot of things that talk to me about a cognitive model in your in your background in terms of wanting to talk to people more than drug them necessarily. If yeah. you can go cognitive yeah. first. Do you feel, Todd, that, that a good... That it's very osteopathic? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I know you drank the Kool-Aid. You're good to go. But, no, but the thing I'm getting at is when you talk to a family doctor and a person... So how what's your, how is your feeling in terms of clinical psychologists and psychiatrists being able to make uh, appropriate diagnoses because they, 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 they cross realms. They do certain things and others don't. They, they, they don't. But explain, if you could briefly, the role of the clinical psychologist and the role of the psychiatrist for a family doctor that needs to make a referral. What, what, what defines how they go down those like roads? Like when I use one versus the other? Sure. Yeah. So 
I think you should be using both all the time. So um, one of the reasons I work at ABH and one of the reasons I got spoiled at Chillicothe VA, I did a lot of my residency there and I was with psychologists all the time. And I remember when I was a resident and I came to ABH and I, I go in this room and I sit down and my treatment team is myself and then my social worker sits down and all of a sudden here comes Russell Fox, psychologist. And all of a sudden we have just a full team of people to help someone right now. You know, I got the pharmacology down and yeah, I know what therapies to refer people to, right? And then I got Russ who can do the testing and do one-on-one -on -one therapy. And I had Shana, who's my social worker, is just can do therapy and make good discharge. I mean, uh, you know, it's, I don't think that mental, and you know, a lot of this clinical opinion, but you know, mental health treatment is, more than just, oh, I'm going to hand you a medicine, it's going to be okay. And a lot of times you aren't going to fix mania by talking a person through it. And it really takes both people to get there. And that is one of the many reasons I love working in state hospital is, is I have the whole team. I have, as, as the uh, chief clinical officer, I have a full staff of psychologists. I have a full staff of psychiatrists. I have a full staff of social workers and social work department. Tell me another psychiatrist has it as good as I do, you know? I mean, not many. Other state hospitals have the same thing, but, you know, I mean... It's, they don't live in Athens. They don't live in Athens. <laughs> no, you well, neither do I. You're I just work of, here. What, do you live in Princeton? I live in... Yeah. <laughs> I live just outside Columbus. What? Yeah, yeah. Why are you doing that for? Oh, see, that's kind of personal stuff, but I love hockey first off. Oh, I see what I'm doing. I'm a season jackets. ticket holder for the jackets. Oh, yeah. Okay. I also have a significant medical history. And when something oh. happens, I want to be in Columbus. Okay, you don't have to go to that. But because I, that's that medical history is part of why I'm the physician I am today. Well, yeah. Because I've been a patient. I've been a patient in real serious situations. Oh. You know? So my attitude towards patients, I treat them the way I wasn't treated at some times or the way I was. So true. Mm -hmm. And I've had really poor medical. So I live outside Columbus because you know what? If I need something now, hey, there's, and you know, I'm a little partial towards Ohio Health because they, they've already been there for me during a bad time for me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was, they caught it. I was taken care of real fast and out the door back to work, no problem. So, you know, I'm going to live in an area that I can be close to the medical care I need. Interesting. And uh, I, but I don't want to work anywhere but a rural environment. I'm, I'm under an hour from work. You it's know? nice to get that it's four lane, isn't it? Yeah, it's easy. <laughs> yeah, it is. And if I drove to a similar hospital in Columbus, it's still a 45 minute it's drive. True. It's so true. what does it matter? Everyone's like, oh, you drive so far. I go, no, I drive distance wise far, but time wise, it's about the same and a lot easier. Mm -hmm. And it mellows you out before you go to work, right? It does. Yeah. Just I, totally green. I, I either listen to my heavy metal music or I listen to a podcast. So it depends on what I need to it's get. My day going. Best of both worlds. That's it. So it's my chill out time. <laughs> what else you got, Mara? What have you learned about yourself throughout your journey as a psychiatrist? Hmm. Um. I think it goes back to the stigma. I think what I've learned is that, you know, I feel like, and I tell my patients there is like, let me fight the battle for you. You know, especially addiction. You know, like. Um, I feel like I have to always advocate. No, I don't feel like I have to. I need to. I don't feel like I do. I need to keep advocating for my patients. And, you know, there's been such a stigma around mental illness and people see people with mental illness and they already form these really strong opinions against them, right? And you see things in the news all the time. Oh, 
they're schizophrenic, they're dangerous. No, they're not. You know, I have to, over my time in psychiatry, I realized that when I chose to be a psychiatrist, it is more than prescribing meds and stabilizing people. Because one of the things I said I love about psychiatry is I help give people their life back, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. But it's, I have a bigger responsibility than that because I can do that all day long. But I also need to be that educated person standing out there advocating for them all the time. Like, you know, just because they have a mental illness, like they feel like they can't work. They feel like they can't do things and people have made them feel that way. So it's my job to empower them, tell them you can do whatever you want. You can do this. And, uh, you know, that's what I've learned in psychiatry. It's more than just a patient-doctor relationship, and it's more than just prescribing meds. It's really about um, being a face out there and always advocating for them because so many people have a wrong, uneducated opinion about mental illness, and we forget that what's the term doctor mean, right? Teacher. It means teacher, and it's my job to teach people that my patients are great. And, you know... I am privileged to be a psychiatrist. I am privileged to have the job I have, and I am privileged to have the trust those patients have in me. Because when you have a patient-doctor relationship with a psychiatric patient, and they are telling you that they're hearing voices, and they're telling you these things, they are coming in going, oh, I'm stuffed up, I need an antibiotic. They're telling you that their life is in shambles. They're telling you they have no hope, they don't want to live, all these things, and they are bearing their soul to you. Now, what are you going to do with that? You know, oh, I broke your leg. Well, let me cast it up. No, it's not as simple as a surgery or casting something. You have got to be a support for them. And the trust that they give you is an honor that I don't feel. I feel that that is one of the privileges I have as a psychiatrist that I never felt when I was doing rotations and other things. Hmm. How do you develop that trust with the patient? Um Humor, straightforwardness, being direct, and being consistent. Mm -hmm. Not judging them at any time. Mm -hmm. uh, when patients are so like delusional and delusions being, you know, uh, false fixed belief, right? And, or like, a better example, I'm going to go and I'll say a patient with borderline personality disorder. I had a patient who thought, oh, he's going to discharge me. He's going to discharge me and I'm not ready. Um, did I tell you I was going to discharge you? No. So what does that mean? You're not going to discharge me? Right. And it's just consistency, consistency. And for me, it's that bluntness and straightforward, being straightforward. And I feel like a lot of times in my own life, I'm so concrete that it relates well to a lot of my patients who are concrete thinkers. And that's it. And I joke with them. I come in, I joke, and the for one of the first things I do is like what they like, and the, like one of my jokes I say with patients all the time is I love making fun of when they like country music, and I one of the things I'll go is oh you like country I go they don't I, I don't have enough medication to fix that and they look at me to fix that and all of a sudden they just you know it's just developing that comfort with them and you know for me and I every doctor's different but for me it's being sarcastic and humorous when appropriate because if a patient's too sick they aren't going to get it mm -hmm. but really and all the time for me just being very just straightforward and saying things in a way that they just understand what i mean and drawing boundaries I'm just curious, how are you able to tell the difference between um, a patient's delusions and um, what they're actually trying to 
convey to you? A lot of times it's really easy, right? Really? Because, yeah, persecutory delusions or grandiose delusions, you know, it's easy. You're so and so the present, like, it's easy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of times some feel like it could be so real. I remember there was someone who was saying they were a member of all these gangs and stuff like that. And it was like, oh, they're delusional, delusional. And I sit down in a room with them and they're talking to me. I'm like... I feel like this is pretty real, you know, just because we're in Athens. So I'm like, oh, and I start looking into it and I start calling family because I'm like, who can I call that you trust that I can learn more about? And you know what? It's it can be difficult. But, um, you know, that's just establishing a good relationship with them and um, and getting there, you know. Mm hmm. I think to close off, um, so today there, as we talked about, there's a stigma surrounding mental health. Do you have any suggestions or advice for us as medical students as to how we can be advocates and sort of change that stigma? Uh, you know, recently, um, just be leaders. Lead by example. Just because they have a mental illness, they're still a patient. Don't go in a room going, Oh, they have schizophrenia and don't go in the room any different than if they don't. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a lot of what those patients lose. You know, I think that's why I'm successful is I go in the room with them the same as any other. And um, I know that I, I have a real passion for teaching. I have a lot of students come through. I spend a lot of time, a lot of like fourth year med students like coming with me because I put them through the paces before they try their residency auditions. I get a lot of third year students, I get a lot of nurse practitioner students, PA students. And, you know, all of them, it's just, I make them just go sit down and talk to patients. Just go sit down and talk to them about what I go. I don't know. They're a person. Go figure it out. Go figure out. Go talk to them. Right. That's so true. You have to still view them as a person. This isn't just a case or a disease or a diagnosis. They are still a person. So yeah. I think that's really important. And, and it doesn't define them. Like, there's certain things right. like... Oh, oh, I got a borderline. No, you don't. You have a patient with borderline personality disorder. Oh, I have a schizophrenic. No, you don't. You have a patient who has schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Oh, I got this bipolar patient. No, you don't. You have a patient who has bipolar disorder. And a person should never be labeled by their disease, whether it be, oh, you're a diabetic or, oh, you're schizophrenic. It doesn't matter. We should never let any disease define an individual. It's just something that's going on that we help them get through. Great. I think that's a great place. Uh, well, kind of. You have more to say? I, I, I have more to ask. Oh. Yeah. Okay. That's okay. Then when they edit this in post, they'll cut that in. So they'll make the first segment <laughs> longer. It's amazing how they can do okay. that. So, so i tell you one thing I like too, after being a jaded ER urgent care guy, where you'd see a lot of people that, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, were misguided in their utilization of healthcare and not malicious in their uh, overutilization of healthcare. What happens in the behavioral health hospital is you realize everybody there is there because they have an issue. They may not have a, a, a traditional medical malady, but they've got something wrong. And when you start really realizing the impact that just an admission to a psychiatric hospital has on a human being's life, whether it's they're separated from their family or their children or the life stories they have, these are, in many cases, really broken people. Mm-hmm. And it makes it so much easier as a physician to walk in and realize, I may not find something that is within the scope of my ability, either in my experience as an intensive care doctor or as a general family practitioner, but there is a real issue with this patient, and they need help. And I find that so refreshing to walk into a place knowing that every patient that I would see 
has a real problem that they need help with. Yeah. And and whether or not I can figure it out or Jambros figures it out or somebody else does, I'm telling you, after years of this other stuff, I look forward every day I'm in that place. I do because I see people and I get to hear about their histories and it's very difficult not to empathize with some of the whatever wherever they came from, where they're at now, it is a really tough place to end up there and they need all the help they can get. And that's why it's so motivational for a young person who's interested in a field where you're not going to have any ambiguity about are you really going to, are you, is, it, is it your patient there legitimately? If you're in psychiatry and you're doing inpatient psychiatric help, you, the, your patients are all legit. Yeah. Yeah. And and even when you feel like they aren't because the you know there's burnout. Yeah. There's some lingers. Yeah. Their best day is probably still better than your worst day. Totally. And it's so easy to sit back and get upset about why a patient is there or what's going on. And a lot of times when we're in the position we are, nurses, physicians, whoever it is, we forget how blessed we are. And we have the opportunity to work with these people that, yeah, maybe they don't need to belong there. Right. But that doesn't mean we stay bitter about it. Like. What does it take to end up in a psychiatric hospital? That's what I'm saying, Todd. When it's, I walk out of that building and I look at the trees and I realize there's a bunch of patients behind that door behind me. That don't you're get going to, home. I get to go outside and see the trees. And these people are so ill or broken in their lives, they have to stay there until they can get better. And that motivates you to go back and say, we got to do everything we can to try to help those people be able to walk outside and see the trees again and feel good about it. That really is powerful. What are some of the qualifications to be at the behavioral health clinic? You have to be a danger to yourself or others and someone who's quali- who's licensed to, and that's a lot of different people, ER docs, nurse practitioners now, state of Ohio has changed that, um, social workers who are licensed, to, and they, they deem that on a pink slip. And I've, I should know the exact code, Ohio revised code, but I don't, but it's a form they fill out. It's pink, why they're a danger to themselves to others. Mm-hmm. Then I medically clear them. I looked at their because people think because I work in a psychiatric hospital, it's a hospital. But you know, we are not in ER. We don't have EKGs. We don't have IVs, right? So I got to look that they're medically stable. We looked at that. Can we handle them? And then I just bring them in. And uh, the person that he, Max McGee, Doctor Max McGee, who who retired last month, um, who I'm I'm taking over for him now, he was. I mean, I have a tendency of when I just see a really good person, I just know that that's where I need to be. And when I was looking for jobs, uh, Dr. McGee was that person. And the one thing he always says is like, in the end, no matter what your feelings say, whether they belong here or not, whatever it is, just remember, take care of the patient. And you know, in the end, if a patient is pink slipped and they are medically stable, I'm going to take care of that patient. And that is another blessing of working in the state hospital is if I choose to bring someone in, it doesn't matter. Like that person needs somebody now and that ER wants them gone, whatever it is. I'm if they're even getting dropped off at the door by police because they're fine. Like whatever it is, if I have a bed, I'm going to take care of that patient. Even if I don't have a bed, I'm going to do what I can to take care of that patient. And that's something Dr. McGee always said, like whenever you get wrapped up in the politics and being upset about whatever, he just said that line. And that is something I will take with me forever because he's right. That's when we go to medical school, we make that choice and that's what we need to do. And I got to believe, Todd, that the rate of malingering is extremely low in a mental health hospital. You might find onesies and twosies, but I would venture to say 98%, 99% of people that are admitted there have an issue they really need help with. 
It, it, it's a very unique perspective, uh, much like the ICU. I love working in the ICU because I knew every patient there was critically ill. This wasn't like, yeah, I've had toothache for six weeks and I haven't gone to a dentist. I'm coming to the ER at 3 a.m. Just to, this is real, the, just like the ICU. When they're there, they really need the help. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. I do have one last question, and maybe it's if it's too long to look at, then maybe you come back and we'll talk about it some other time. Okay. Maybe you should come in and do your series on SSRIs just as a couple of segments <laughs> and talk about it. But Because I, people would listen to that. Students would listen to that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I guarantee it. But ECT, right? So, yeah. So I had a nurse years ago in family medicine that her life was changed by that. She was completely incapacitated with profound depression. And then when she had ECT, it gave her 11 years back before she relapsed again. Yeah. What, what, do, you, what do you think? Electroconvulsive so, therapy. So, you know, just... Uh, so before I say this, it's just going to be a short answer, right? Because yeah. we can go into it. I'm not going to a lot of science of it. But, you know, one of the things, and this still goes back to stigma and mm-hmm. why yeah. people say, oh, why are you you're hanging up the stethoscope? Because there's movies out there that depict ECT as punishment and depict it as just this cruel therapy, right? And we all know that there have been very poor therapies in psychiatry in the past, lobotomies, mm-hmm. insulin therapies, right? We insulin shock therapies like and i don't want to go down that hole but a lot of people also lump ect into that right i mean what's one of the most famous movies I've ever seen, the Coo- Jack, right didn't he win an Who oscar doesn't for that no yeah yeah he won an oscar for it i mean everyone knows that right and the picture of him in the straight jackets on movie posters everywhere and that is what i fight when i need to get people a good treatment like ect i remember i think i've seen more restraints in the work i did than i've seen at abh you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I put more people in restraints, I think, than you probably have. Look, my staff is great at de-escalating. Yeah, of course. And we still feel like we have too many restraints. I've never seen a one since I'm I've been there. I'm telling you, as I am, the staff that I work with are so wonderful. Like, I am so blessed to have those people. They know how to de-escalate, and they do a wonderful job. And you do. We avoid so many restraints, and we still all feel like we have too many, right? Because restraining people is traumatic. It's it doesn't matter thing. if it needs to be done. But getting back to the ECT, when I was a med student and I had to study ECT because I had to be prepared for the psychiatry residencies, right? Residency interviews. And I Google ECT, and I don't know if it's still this way or not, but the site that pops up the first Google search is an anti-ECT website. And I'm looking at it and I'm going, oh. And one of the big things that got me into psychiatry is ECT. I'm, I'm at this hospital in Winchester, and I'm on the inpatient floor, and here's this guy, he's a banker, and all of a sudden he's suicidal, so depressed, and the only thing that ever worked for him in the past was ECT, and in the matter of a week, he was a different person, and he wanted this therapy. So how do we talk patients into this therapy that we can't totally explain, and we know works, and we know it gives people their life back, and... When you Google it, you get pictures of Jack Nicholson in a straitjacket, and you get these websites that are like, oh, you lose your memory, you know, and there's side effects to everything, and the memory loss isn't as profound as a lot of people try to make it out to be, even though it is a side effect, right? And it is. It's a, it's, it's, it's such a great avenue of medicine, and it's one of the things we fight with stigma on. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. And for the record, people that have ECT are sedated. Yes. They are basically extremely comfortable 
when it starts, right? You have an anesthesiologist. Anesthesiologist in attendance, and you induce a mild seizure. And when they resolve the seizure, for some reason, it reboots the brain in a way that they're not impressed. And it is life-saving. And that's something that is fascinating to me because even through medical school, I still had that stigma. And then I started talking to some of the psychiatrists, and they mentioned ECT, and I met this nurse. And she said flat out it saved her life. Yeah. She was suicidal, profound depression, and she was able to go back to work as a functional, like you say, your patients, you can do anything you want. She yeah, had want. profound suicidal ideations, attempts, depression. ECT, 11 years, she went back to practice before she relapsed. And I think yeah. she went, I lost track of her in care, but I think she went back and had it done again. But it was amazing. And so that's that goes back to that. That's why these are things are helpful is people learning about how uh, behavioral health tra- changes over time and how... Um, how it's not something that is, um, I guess, as foreign maybe or as out there like maybe we were brought up to believe that really it should be integral and we should see that in the future that medical students, not just people who are interested like Mara's and being a psychiatrist, but I mean people who don't even know about psychiatry doing a psychiatry rotation in an inpatient facility and an outpatient facility, just seeing what psychiatrists do. And like you say, we don't have enough psychiatrists, right? Oh, and this, when I went and say still throw this number at students, but I, I, it's probably more, maybe it's less, but there was a, when I looked at residencies, Seven, eight years ago, there was 45,000 physician deficits in psychiatry. 45,000? 45,000. And most psychiatrists were of the age of 60 and retiring. Wow. Oh, my gosh. you got a bright future, Mark. You Hopefully. Should, you should see. The first off, if a psychiatrist is working somewhere, it's, it's, it should only be because they're happy there and they're getting what they need. Because there is another job. There are so many psychiatry jobs. Which is why me as a medical director at Appalachian Behavioral Healthcare, it's it's about making sure that I have an environment for my physicians and my nurse practitioners and all medical staff that they're in a they're in a situation where um, they're happy coming to work. I need to avoid burnout. That's important to me. Is we can't and the and we have even though it's lower than a lot of other specialties. You know, we talk, burnout seems to be a very popular topic we're talking about with med students, uh, physicians nowadays. It's because of the demands on. So that's one of the things I now look at as as a chief clinical officer is what am I going to do to make sure that my physicians don't burn out yet? appropriate amount of work and we're just providing really great care for our patients at the same time. So so this leads me to something. What's your advice, Todd, when you when you have a student that maybe has never considered psychiatry, what what should they be doing to give themselves a good exposure from predoctoral to to even if they're let's say they're FP? I mean, what would you advise them to do to expand their 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 knowledge of it as a field, a potential field for specialization? Get a rotation in an inpatient psychiatric unit. Mm-hmm. I feel like that is where you see it. Like my med students with me, my nurse practitioner students with me, I even have them stay. Like, I I actually don't have them come on Fridays because, one, I can get my work done and go home for the weekend. But more than that, they stay late with me on my MOD shift when I'm on duty, and they see the patients coming in the door. And when they see those patients turn around and how we get them there, that's when you see it. It's not the, you know, it's not the med checks. I remember when I was a fourth-year med student, I was doing an outpatient psychiatry rotation because I was just trying to do all the psychiatry I was allowed to do. I was just trying to stay awake in a corner of the office, right? I'm not trying to be mean, but, I mean, it's like it's a med check, right? It's a lot of talking. And, I mean, the psychiatrist was great. He taught me a lot of stuff. He lectured me all the time. 
But where you see it and where you see the rapid turnarounds, where you really understand why medications work the way they do, I'd say get yourself an inpatient rotation. Also, volunteer. One of the things that um, I think students should be involved with that want to do mental health is NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness. I mean, I just did the walk this weekend. Um, and get involved and be out there with patients, you know, be out there with people with mental illness. Like I shouldn't even just say patients, be out there with people with mental illness because, you know, you'll learn real quick. Are you going to, are you communicate well with these patients? What are you going to do? You know, and, uh, go from that's a great way to start is just immerse yourself, just get exposure. Not that it has to be everything, but get exposure. How do you know you want to do something if you don't do it? Yeah, that's true. Very true. So definitely in third and fourth year. How about FPs or primary care residents? That do you advise that they take an, a psychiatric rotation as part I of their do. general training? I feel I mean, I don't know how many require them, how many don't. But with all the meds gone, I wish they would. I know that if a residency called me and we've had some family med residents come through, I'll tell you right now, I I'd, I'd find a way to get them a month in my hospital. Because look, I'm look what I'm telling you right now. It's like hey. Our, our primary care physicians need, we need to enable them. We need to empower them because they, it's not psychiatrists that are going to fix this problem. It's, right. it's our primary care providers out there that are going to fix this problem as well as people breaking down the stigma. That is how, that is how we're going to treat patients. It's not more psychiatrists and more psychiatric hospitals. So and I have one other question for you. Uh, and that is this. So if you could think of the five diagnoses, behavioral health diagnoses that would be commonly seen in primary care, what would they be that a, that a family doctor should just really learn? Well, I, I think that instead of just really learn, it's the differentials. Mm-hmm. I think being extremely competent in unipolar depression versus bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. A patient with bipolar disorder a primary care physician is only going to see, not only, but almost all the time is going to see a patient who has bipolar disorder in their depressed state. People with bipolar disorder spend most of their life depressed, not manic. And you don't know how many times you get a patient that's manic because they were given an SNRI, because they came in depressed, because a patient who's hypomanic or manic isn't going to come to their primary care doc and say, I need medicine to fix this. They feel good. You know, they're on top of the world. They're on mm-hmm. top of the world. So it's it's being able to differentiate between depression mm-hmm. and you, major depressive disorder, meaning you only depressed, and patients who have bipolar, and spending that extra time asking the questions. Just spend the extra time. Go through your MDQ. You know your mood disorder questionnaire. Go through those things that seem time consuming, but it stops harm and gets some treatment better. How many primary care providers do I see patients with bipolar disorder? And they've been through six different SSRIs before they get to me, right? And we all know with each SSRI failure, you're less likely for the next one to work, right? I mm-hmm. mean, look at the STAR study on that. Mm-hmm. And just it's not as much knowing diagnoses as much as being able to rule out something more serious like bipolar disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. That's seen in primary care all the time, mm-hmm. right? That's that's bread and butter primary care mental illness. You know, I don't see many people with OCD in, in the psychiatric hospital. And uh, being comfortable, being comfortable going up, being comfortable to go up high enough on an antidepressant that's going to be therapeutic 
And and here's the thing, and I'm going to give you one quick example of my relationship. I have a wonderful primary care doc, wonderful Ohio health doc. He's wonderful. And um, I was diagnosed with diabetes a little over a year ago. Okay. Insulin dependent? Non-insulin dependent. Non-insulin. Type 2. Actually, that's good. I, I went longer than my parents so far. I'm 45. Both my parents have had heart attacks before the age of 40. Both of them were diabetic around 40. And I'm 45 just getting these problems. So I feel like I'm winning right now. That's good. Okay? Because I'm aware and I don't smoke all those things, right? I could probably eat less. But uh, um, so I go in and he starts me on metformin. And I, I do the titration, and I tell you what, I crapped my brains out. I felt like I needed my own <laughs> private bathroom in my office. I mean, and I go into them like three months later, and my A1C drops from like 8.7 to 6.9. That's great. And I look at him, I go, I was, and not I didn't say crap, but I was crapping my brains out. He laughs. He goes, yeah, that's why half the people fail metformin. They can't handle the side effects. Why didn't he teach me about the side effects? That's a good point. They don't, people don't in general, right? And not just primary, I'm talking all physicians. They're like, here's your med, fix this, go. We see it all the time. I get patients on psychiatric meds that fail their SSRI or fail a certain antipsychotic, not because they really failed it, but because the doctor didn't prep them on what to expect. Mm -hmm. So it's not just like metformin in my experience. I'm talking about like all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I take that into every patient I have. I've even had experiences like that before. And then I'm like, well, I'm just not going to take this anymore. Yeah. And if they would have told me, oh, these are the side effects you're going to expect. I probably would have been like, okay, I think I can handle that. I might be able to follow through. And it'll go away. Right. Right. Whereas when you experience them and you're like, no, forget it. Not taking that anymore. Yeah. There's a misperception among a lot of medical students. And I think probably practicing physicians that their patients are compliant. I think they've done studies that show that about 40% of the time. And I'm going to interrupt you real quick. Yeah. It's not compliant. We should be going for (laughs) adherence. Okay. We want a patient relationship. Fair enough, Todd. And if we make patients adherent, they're more likely to take their medication. And part of adherence is education. If they understand why they take their med and what goes along with it, they are going to take it, and we aren't going to have to worry about them whether they're taking it or not. No, I concur completely. But, I mean, I think there's a hubris among a lot of physicians that think if I just tell a patient they're going to do it, and the, yeah. and the reality is is they don't. at least 40% don't do it, or they do it sub-therapeutically or for all these reasons. Either they give them horrible yeah. side effects or they're financially, they, they're afraid to tell the doctor they don't like it. There's a whole, and if, if you just sit down and talk to them for a little bit and say, what what is it, what's the barrier here? Just tell me what's bothering you about this. Let me hear it and we'll try to work through it. They would be so much happier because their patients would tell them and then they try to find out another solution. And because I understand, and because I understand how important it is beyond metformin, my sugars are, my A1C is under six all the time. Now I get checked. I'm always in, in the 5.7, 5.8s. And it's because. What did they do worth, with the diarrhea? It went away eventually. Oh, I was slow. Look, it was miserable. Look, I knew, right? Like there's yeah. even studies that say that same metformin extends life. I need to have my sugars under control. I need to not have a heart attack. I need to be here for my family. I need to be here for my patients. Yeah. I have an obligation to take care of myself. And if I don't set my own example by doing the right thing, how can I expect my patients to do that? No, that point's extremely well taken. Mm-hmm. I, we have a third segment, and we'll, we, we've had a third segment, basically. We've gone over, but I, I do have one thing. Do you think, because, I mean, we talk about bipolar. When I was a kid, 
You never heard about bipolar disease. So is it that we now recognize it where we didn't before? Or do you think the incidence and the prevalence in society has increased of behavioral health problems? I, I think it's access. I think it's education. Hmm. I think that, do you notice we have more cases of things as we go along? And what's increased with that? Technology, social media, everything's instant. Every time there's a problem, we see it and we know it right now, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that we have less suicides than we have before? Or do you think we just know about it all the time? People are posting on Facebook about that they're going to attempt suicide now, right? Like we have all these instant things and then the substances get better, right? Or worse, I should say. Like methamphetamine, I mean, how long have we been making meth? Was there, were they, and I, I'm gonna ask a question, I, I'm pretty sure they didn't have meth in the 60s, right? I don't think so. But how much meth? They shouldn't have amphetamine. Cause? Yeah, you know, but you know, crystal meth and we see patients come in psychotic and manic and even though that's substance induced, how many times we see patients not come back from that? Plenty? Tons. You know? So, I mean, I think it's a combination of things, but I think the biggest thing is education, recognizing it. I mean, people have mental illness. What we used to do is put them in a hospital or people didn't look at them anymore or families put them, you know, kind of took care of them, didn't let people know they had mentally ill family, right? That was that was a part of our history. Yeah. And now it's all about education, getting treatment, and it's it's better, and we just got to make it even even be able to prevent present an even less a more non judgmental society without people who need help can get it. I hate to. I'm gonna ask one more question. See, it, it, there's so many different questions that you, that as a primary care guy, a family physician, are interesting to me. Do you think we have too few inpatient beds in this country? Yes. Okay. I just want to make sure because I. I get the impression that there are some patients who just do really well with adult supervision. They need that constant reassurance. But you know, the one thing I will say that while I feel like we need more inpatient beds, and I don't yeah. know how much we need that, I know that's a local thing because mm. I know that I've always got a wait list. Yeah. I don't know the last time my hospital had free beds. And if there was an open beds, because we knew we had someone coming in the morning from court order, right? It's we are We are always staying full and we're... We, I know that with Medicaid expansion, there's supposed to be more access to care and it's out there and there is more access to care, but it's still not enough. And, you know, especially in, in Appalachia and rural America, you know, it's just less and less. And I think that's part of the stigma going away and people seeking help. And But you know, it's funny to me, Todd, is you look at the hospital in Weston or the hospital here in Athens, they're huge facilities. At one time we had these facilities that were massive and I'm wondering there was a much smaller population in the country at that time, and we felt the need to build these facilities that could house people. But see, you're, what, and that's also the difference between acute care and long-term care, right? Yeah, yeah. And I will tell you that my goal as a psychiatrist is that a patient is not in the hospital. It is, you know, I I don't want to see more inpatient beds for patients that are just never going to leave the hospital. I want more inpatient beds for the patients who need the acute care so that we can prevent them from needing that long-term care. But, but do you feel that there's a population that just needs to be able to be in a place where you they're know, secure? I think where I see things more is not as much secure, but like things, because I think that's part of the stigma. I think that integration is important. Okay. But, you know, like there are patients who are in the hospital because they can't find them a group home. Yes, yeah, true. Or I can't find them a place to live without the proper level of care. And when we deinstitutionalized back in the late 60s, right? The whole point was all that money was supposed to go to outpatient services. 
all that money was supposed to like because people shouldn't have to live their life in a hospital right and all that money is supposed to go there yet we don't have the services we need for them and there's patients in the hospital right now that i would love to have them somewhere else and they should be people don't deserve to live in a hospital right well, so it's an interesting thing you bring up that you're talking about a group home, which really allows some assistance in terms of probably some ADLs as well as, you know, management of, of personal issues and helping people, say, who have a difficult time figuring out getting to work or, or helping to manage some of those things are more complex for folks. To me, what we would talk about as a traditional hospital like Athens or Weston was um, would would have those levels of care. I think of it more like assisted living for the elderly, that you have these scales that go clear yeah. to the nursing home, where some people live relatively independently, but they just need to know there's someone there if they have a break or they need to have some care to the people who really need a lot of care. Right. To me, that would be the ideal facility, that you could have that level, those varying levels as a person progressed and improved, that they could become more and more independent. Um, and so maybe we're looking at something attacking uh, achieving the same ends through different facilities you're thinking about group homes that are out in the community and i'm thinking of something that's more centralized but but if we had the group homes yeah we don't need centralized we need people involved in the community i get you i totally do you know i totally do and uh and we just need more outpatient resources all that where we Mm deinstitutionalized and which by the way it was a great thing we did like you know i i kind of kind of say like i take patients out in the community because they need to leave that area. When patients yeah. are chronically ill and I have trouble getting them out of the hospital, right, and finding them the right placement, if I don't get them out of that hospital, they need to feel the real world. Mm-hmm. Why do you get up every morning, right? Like, not only do I get up for my job every day, like, tonight the Jackets are playing the Flyers. Are you going? Uh, no, because I'm here. Well, you got to go. go late. What time? Oh, it started at 7. I got a long way. Did you get? You can either. I'm, I'm used to living with it. Well, that's beside the point. The point is, is that we all have things we love to do. Yeah. What do you have left to love to do if you're spending your life in a hospital? Yeah. That's the thing we I fight. And I'm like, so I take them out and I do things. And one of the great things about ABH I love, I can talk about why I love where I work all day long, but we have activity therapies that does things with patients and they get out some. And I, I mean, there's some, God, I love our AT staff. And whenever I go into them, let me tell you what, they have... They have their finger on the pulse. They know. If I think something's up, they're like, yeah, jam, you know, uh, this patient's a little squirrely. They don't feel right. Normally they do this and they did this instead. And that may not seem like a big deal. But to me, when you know a patient that way, you're going, oh, are they, this something's not right. And getting patients out of that institutionalized setting and getting them exposure outside stressors, like that's why we get up every day, isn't it? Yeah. And it's funny that people don't realize, they don't equate that with like ICU psychosis. You know, people that are in a completely unfamiliar environment that are critically ill, they don't do well. They need to have, that's why I hate windowless ICU rooms. It it makes me crazy. We walk in there and all of this is lights out of something out of alien. And you're like, if I'm really sick, I want to see a tree. Yeah. And we don't do that, you know. But this has really been great. Tom, I'm so thankful that you took the time to come over and talk to us. I appreciate Mark, you me too. Me. Thank you so much. I really yeah. appreciate it. I've learned so much through this session, and I'm really grateful that you were able to come today and do the podcast. So thank you so much again. No problem. Thanks for having me. Would you ever be willing to come back and do a segment on some specified topic of psychiatry that's of interest to you? Sure. Would you? Yeah. I think it'd be helpful. Okay. Do you know that like several thousand people listen to this? All over the really? all over the world. See, I was nervous about that. No, so, yeah. no. Well, yeah. you noticed that we had no cameras running. We decided we made an elective decision yeah. not to have video anymore. Oh, 
I didn't really? know that. You're not on a camera. I here saw I that there were some. Like, <laughs> no, you could be. You could be. You could be like a typical newscaster that with, makes with it shorts so much on. Easier. You know that? No, it does because yeah. I'll tell you. Like I, I, I got on your YouTube channel today just yeah. for the first time when I had to see what it was. Yeah. And I saw there were pictures. And I'm like. Oh, and like I'm wearing a tie today because, uh, you know, no, you could have worn like a pink floor. But this isn't me. Well, I I was like, oh, I wish I was more casual to be on camera. I don't want to be the psychiatrist in a shirt and tie today. <laughs> like, I don't want to be that guy. No, I'm telling you. Speaking of pictures, yeah. can we take a picture for my poster? Yeah, we're going to take a picture of your poster. Oh, but, for the poster. That's right. Okay. But, but we're going to end this segment. Oh, yes. And then we're going to do some magic for post production. And then we're going to take a picture. Okay. And then Jambros can go find the job. Ja- yes, you'll get into the second. You'll be there second game. period. That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking about picking my place. So I used to live in. I'm sure you're going to edit this part out, but I grew up between Chicago and Philadelphia. Oh yeah. So like all my sports teams were Chicago except for hockey. It was Philadelphia because I never watched hockey in Chicago because my childhood was split. And my first hockey game I ever watched was Ron Hextall scoring a goal, a second empty net goal. So, like, when I moved to Columbus, I became a trader, which I didn't know was possible. But now I'm just all about the Jackets. Like, if you go to my They're office. They're a great hockey team. They are. And, uh, but the Flyers, I have not missed a Flyer game. This is how important it was that I was here today. Is you have NHL, is, what is NHL on ice for you? Do you, you subscribe? There's not need. I have season tickets. Like, why do I have to make sure I watch every away game, too? How much hockey is in my life? Oh, I thought you went and saw the Flyers. That's what I'm saying is that the Flyers are playing tonight. Tonight's going to be the oh, first dude, Flyers to game go. You've got to get to the, no, first you're Flyers not. Okay, let's I do this miss. quickly. Yes, you have to go. Okay, so <laughs> okay, I made up my mind. I thought I was already giving it up. Well, so. next time, next time, I know you'll have one. You're, next time you're going to come, you're going to wear your, your your Jack's jersey. Yes, I can. I have plenty. Of I them. know you do. <laughs> I have no, plenty we can of all, We can all wear one. <laughs> I have a ton of jackets, jerseys. And actually, my big thing is I go to Philadelphia every year for a game or something like last few years, ever since I've not been a resident. Yeah. Like last year, I went uh watched Eric Lindros's number get retired in Philadelphia. Mm. And I took my old jersey, you know, from the 90s. Uh, and that, and I had him, I got him to autograph. I you did. Autograph, I got him to sign an old, old, with a stain on it jersey that I had. <laughs> you know, Jam, you're missing OU hockey. It's fun. I've been to a couple games. It's fun. It is fun. They're good. It is fun. For yeah. college league, for for a, for a, you know, just no. a, a t- yeah. I remember I went to a college game once and I hated it. And it wasn't OU. It was like OU's I went to see fun. Virginia Tech play Temple no. in Roanoke, Virginia. Man. And uh, I was like, oh, this is boring. It's so slow. And I went to, I've been to two OU games now because once a year the hospital goes to an OU game. We we do it with the committee. Like we all pick it in. We buy tickets and we all go. And uh, I've been the last two years, and it is a blast. It's a lot. I love OU hockey. Yeah. I love going. I think that if I didn't go to all those Blue Jacket games all the time, there's only so much hockey you can go to, and I love hockey. I mean, I even do fantasy hockey. I mean, I have a fantasy football team, but I'm not going to miss. I didn't have a fantasy hockey team this year, and I was so upset I couldn't find a league. I formed a league because I had to have a fantasy hockey league. That's that you know commitment love hockey i I love hockey too because i don't like football so uh, hockey is awesome and it's a great way to end this i'm gonna have to take you to a game we're gonna go i would go to tickets it's easy but does your wife go with you yeah but you know she's not she and i'll tell you what i'll give this up to my wife is she she knows like when i go did you hear the so-and-so about the jack she goes yeah (laughs) you would let me go on your season tickets to to hell yeah are you serious yeah, I take friends all the time. My wife can only go to so many games. She's usually happy I take friends because <laughs> she likes hockey, but she is not as... She's not, I want to go to 42 games a year. I love hockey. I'm so excited 42. about that. 
42 games. Hockey's yeah. a long season. Yeah, it started in October. It ends in like in April. And you go to everyone. Uh, almost. I go to Except probably today. 80%. 80% oh, no. <laughs> of the games, home games, yeah. Although, oh I gosh. haven't been to a game yet this season because the opening season happened the week I went to the American Psychiatric Association Conference in Chicago. I couldn't even get in a Blackhawk game. Like I was like, it's the opening weekend of the NHL oh, season, no way. and there wasn't there. even a Blackhawk game in in town. Oh, that's too, they weren't there. That's the problem. That's it. They were away, so I couldn't even time that right. First off, the Cubs lose. I can't go to an MLB game. Right? They lose yeah. the Monday before I go to the conference. They're out of the playoffs. The Bears are on their off week. We don't care about football. Oh. I, I care about the Chicago Bears. I have a CTE West by God, problem. Virginia Mountaineer. Oh well, yeah, whatever. Football. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you what, anytime I have a page from West Virginia and I go, oh, you're from West by God, they know I'm one of them. That's right. They're right <laughs> there. They know. And as long as you don't tell the town you're from, but the county, you're good to go. Yeah. Because no one ever talks about the town they're from in West Virginia. It's always the county. And But they say the county and it's always one of two counties in West Virginia. Yeah. They're gone from the county. And I'll be like... Oh, you know, it's either uh, McDowell or Mingo. My McDowell or Mingo. And I live by McDowell. I go, I know McDowell County. The and free state like of 50, McDowell. 50, 50, yes. The free state. Yes. I'm, I'm the West Virginia State Surgeon. There you go. I do. I live, that's my peeps. I live, <laughs> I live and work in, in, in West Virginia. Yeah, so I don't live in West Virginia, but I work there. No, Mara, one last thing. Cause this is going on forever, and we're just riffing. He's got to get to a Phillies uh, Black Jackets game. Uh, second Flyers. period. Flyers. I'm I sorry. I don't care about the Phillies. I'm sorry. Flyers. Dude, I'm so sorry. That's, that's right. So Flyers, Blue Jackets game. So... Do you understand how miserable it is if you're a hockey parent when you have young hockey players? No. It's terrible because they are on the road all the time. They have to go everywhere to play. So, like, it's not uncommon for junior hockey here. Families here in Athens have junior hockey players. And there is a good hockey community here in Athens. There's a huge hockey community here A really good one. Yeah, you wouldn't think it, but there is. They go to Illinois on the weekend to play hockey because they're all over to try to find ice to play on. It's, and they have a long, it's not like football where you have 12 games. Hockey players will play 30 or 40 in a season and it's everywhere. New York, Pennsylvania. They, it's crazy what their lives are like if you're a hockey family and with young people, especially. You know, I did dance, right? Yeah, but you're probably all over the two. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Except you had a lot less expensive like, oh. gear, probably. Well, maybe you had expensive oh, gear. This is it's expensive. I bet she's expensive, oh, and yeah. a lot less of it than a hockey player. Less gear? Well, I'm sure. Hockey players are armored up. Dancers aren't. Yeah, but we got all the costumes. I guess that's good. Twenty dances in a competition. You have to have a costume. I guess Everyone. that's right. Yeah. And a van. Not gear, but. <laughs> Kind of gear. But it's a bag full of 20, 20 costumes equals a set of goalie pads, <laughs> oh, right? Exactly. Goalie yeah. stuff, right? The huge duffel bags, the dancers, the, oh, the hockey yeah. players, and dancers. Well, like I guess ice skaters, I guess would be the same thing. They're uh-huh. all wearing the same. So they're all walking in with the same size bags. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, this has been a lot of fun. <laughs> so, so, so you're, Look at this. Look at all over. We're even talking ice hockey now. Dancing. We're rolling. <laughs> That's what rotations is about. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Right? People have to know that doctors are normal. Yeah. Mara has sort to of. know that. She's but decided not, to become if, a. I, no, we're not normal. There's no such thing as normal. That's true. I'll tell That's you what, true. I never want to be called normal. I tell my patients that all the time. Is there an abnormal? I always say, what is normal? Yeah, what is normal? Is there an abnormal? I don't even like to say that. Like, the abnormal is a negative word. The fact is, we're all different. I mean, how many, how many, like, look, I love my sci fi, I love my comic books, I love my hockey. Why do I have to be pigeonholed in something? I am not even close to normal. I used to play Magic the Gathering competitively, and oh I haven't my. had time to play that. <laughs> Dude, I've got a Batman poster on my wall. I know. There's nothing normal about you. Look at your office, and that's wonderful. <laughs> I'm glad. If you were normal, I wouldn't like you, right? What we I deem as normal. We are too busy pigeonholing normal. Just, we are all awesome. 
that that is a that's the way I want my psychiatrist to think for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay, so we're gonna end this finally, so you can go to second period. Awesome. Are we good? <laughs> yeah. Okay. That was great. Hey, I want to thank everybody for joining us today, and uh, it's it just been a pleasure to have you. With, and uh, we'll get you again on the next episode of Rotations. Rotations is a weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial traditions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage of Co- Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotation is copyrighted and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators and you must cite locations as a source of any content derived from podcasts. We welcome any comments and you can contact us by emailing us rotationspodcast at gmail.com tweeting us at rotationspcast or visiting media slash rotations 